going to be looking at Acts chapter 17 together, Acts chapter 17, and the guys have some Bibles marked at Acts chapter 17, and I'll tell you why we're doing that in just a minute, but if you need a, a Bible to follow along, get their attention. If you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17, and let me just uh, remind you of some things, uh, some announcements. This is our last hour in this building for a little over a month now. As the renovation project to extend this room continues, we're giving the month of January to the contractors, which means we are kicked out then after we're done at noon today. So that means a few things. One, we need to clear out this room today for the contractors so that they can come in and do painting and flooring and all the other stuff they'll be doing in here. And so, guys, if any of you can uh, stick around for that, it shouldn't take very long at all to stack these chairs. We've got carts to uh, take them to another part of the building uh, with, and uh, we don't have that much stuff in here. So if any of you guys can hang around a bit to help with that, just come up front here after we're done, and some of our guys will give some instructions about that. And if you can stay for 15 minutes to do that, if it takes a total of 25, but you only got 15 leave at 15, but anything you can do will be uh, appreciated, and we can knock it out uh, pretty quickly, I'm quite sure. So that's as soon as we're done here at noon, we need to clear this out. Then for the next four weeks in January, we will be meeting at the Woodhaven Community Center. Uh, Woodhaven Community Center is on Hall Road. It's just south of West Road. It's right next to the Woodhaven Police Station, and I'm going into all that detail because we have over the years rented so many different community centers prior to getting this building, that we invariably have somebody go to the wrong one. Uh, we've had picnics at different parks over the years. We always have somebody going to the wrong park. Uh, so we've moved around a lot. Most of you know that. Uh, but it's the Woodhaven Community Center, and we have that reserved for all four Sundays in January. Now, the other thing to know about that is not only the location, but the time. The time is 1030. Our worship service on Sundays normally is at 9.30, and then we have an educational hour, Discovering God Here, and then the age-graded classes. But for those four weeks, it is just the one service, the worship service, and it'll be at 10.30. So we won't have the Discovering God hour, we won't have the age-graded uh, Sunday school classes for those four weeks. They don't have enough rooms there for that. So 10.30 next Sunday at Woodhaven Community Center, and then for the following three Sundays after that, and Lord willing, only for those four weeks. If you were here for the first hour, you heard me say the reason I hedge on that a bit is because we weren't supposed to be out of here for four weeks. Uh, so now my faith is shaken a little bit in the time schedules that I've been getting from the builder. But the good news is, if it ends up being longer than that, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and it'll get done here uh, in relatively short order. And then it'll be a great thing uh, for us as a tool to reach out to the community. So next uh, Sunday, 1030, Woodhaven Community Center. After we're done here at noon, guys, if you can come up front, get some instructions for how to clear out this room, that would be great. And then some things that are just they're in your bulletin, but just to uh, mark on your calendar, February 2nd would then be our first service back here. And we would have our regular schedule 9.30 worship, 11 o'clock for the Discovering God in Sunday School Hour. Uh, we will start uh, on February 2nd then our new members, or excuse me, newcomers orientation. 
And that's a four-week class that I lead for any of you who have been guests at our church, who are looking for the place that God would have you to uh, join and serve. And we offer it to you as a means to give you information about who we are and what we believe and where we've come from and where we hope to go in the future. It doesn't obligate you to anything. It just gives you information to help you make a prayerful decision about uh, whether or not this is the place for you. And if the answer to that is no, that's all good, but you need adequate information to decide up or down. And so we offer that a few times throughout the year. And all, if all goes well and we're back here on February 2nd, then on that Sunday during this hour, uh, I will have that group of you all, uh, whoever that is that wants to take that, uh, in one of our classrooms on the side. And for those four weeks, we'll have others teaching in here. And then we'll start a new series on March the 2nd. After those four weeks are over, I'll start a new series in here called Moving to Maturity, which is all about the discipleship process, but also what our church uh, is offering and is going to offer to help people at the various stages of the discipleship process. That's what that series is about, Moving to Maturity. But then after that, so just stay with me here. After that, you know, you've got Easter, um, April 20th, I think, April 21st. It's late this year. And the weekend after that, which I think is the 27th and 28th, Saturday and Sunday of April, that'll be our grand opening weekend. So on Saturday and Sunday of that weekend, we're going to be inviting the community to come here for events that we're going to have out on the grounds. And then also on Sunday... Uh, to have our worship service, but also opportunity for any who want to, to come in and have a, a tour of the building, uh, kind of an open house format on, on Sunday as well. So end of the last weekend of April will be our grand opening weekend, uh, so that should be an exciting time for us. Uh, but prior to that, we want to have our first outreach series in this, uh, in this uh, or excuse me, at that time, we want to have our first outreach series in the expanded facility. Uh, we've been in here for about 11, almost 11 months now. And in anticipation of the construction that's going on here and the need to expand this room, we have not uh, had a concerted effort at outreach at all to the community. Uh, but that has not been our bent in uh, the years prior. We've been fairly aggressive with outreach, with series that we invite folks to attend, with mailers that we send out. We haven't done that this past year because, honestly, we don't have that much room during the worship hour. And so it's kind of a good problem to have, uh, but you want to fix it. And so we're fixing it with blowing out this wall. Once that gets expanded, now, indeed, we do want to get back to that. So we'll have the mailers and the, the new series. And the new series is going to be 10 uh, Keys to Unlocking the Bible. That's the, the name of the series we want to invite the community to. And the preaching series that I'll be doing at that time will be the first 12 chapters of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, so that folks have a foundation of the key teachings of the Bible that without which you can't understand the rest of the Bible. So we want to help lay that foundation uh, for folks as we introduce ourselves to the community. That'll be the Worship Hour preaching series for a number of weeks. We'll have the 10 Keys to Unlocking the Bible series during the Discovering God Hour. And throughout 2014, we'll do some uh, serious outreach and see what the Lord does uh, here. So it should be an exciting, an exciting time for us. In the meantime, next Sunday, one week from today at the Woodhaven Community Center, what is our series going to be in the uh, Worship Hour? 
Uh, I'm going to begin next week a uh, series of biographical profiles of, of Bible characters. The series is called Profiles in Faith, and we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham next week, and then uh, we're going to look at the life of Joseph, and we're going to look at the lives of a number of, uh, of, of Faith's Hall of Fame uh, that uh, are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. So that'll start next Sunday. It'll go for uh, several weeks until we, uh, until we start the new series uh, in Genesis chapters 1 through 12, okay? So that's more than you wanted, but that's what's uh, coming up, all right? Why Acts chapter 17 today? Well, as a, we, we've got just a, a week here where we're not in a series, which is unusual for us. Last week we concluded the series that we had been doing for nine weeks, from self-help to God's help. That finished last week, so we've got this Sunday where we're not involved in a particular series, so I get to talk about just whatever I feel like. And so why Acts chapter 17? Well, as we do the kinds of things that I just mentioned to you in this coming year, as we uh, in earnest now begin to reach into our community, invite folks to come and uh, pray that the Lord of the harvest will uh, give us indeed a harvest of souls, that hear the gospel, who respond favorably to it, and then want to grow in it. That's what we're, that's what we're about here. So as we start to get in, uh, back into an outreach mode, we need to be reminded of folks' need for the gospel. We need to be reminded of the fact that we are going to a culture in now 2014 where people have adopted a particular mindset that only the gospel can transform. So I want to take this time for us to see from the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the city of Athens in Acts chapter 17, how he ministered to them, how he proclaimed the gospel to that culture 2,000 years ago, which has some similarities to our culture today. Uh, I am 51 now, uh, so I uh, came, uh, came, was raised during a period where we were just starting to come out of the Christian consensus that America had enjoyed over uh, a number of decades, a long time. And you all know what I mean by that? That everybody knew something about Christianity. Many people went to church, even if it was just because it was the polite thing to do, but that's what they did. Uh, the, kinds of, the kinds of culture wars that we are familiar with now were completely unknown then. When my father died in uh, 1973, and as I say, I was 11 then, I've, I've often thought if he were able to come back 2013, 2014, and to see America, uh, you know, still in my, the transformation that's taken place in his son's lifetime, it really, he almost wouldn't recognize it. I mean, it's really that profound. We don't think that. Because when you're in it, you just kind of slowly become accustomed to it. But it is radically, radically different than it was just 40 years ago. Um, I mean, as I say, the culture, the culture was. 1973, that was the very year that Roe v. Wade was decided by the Supreme Court. It legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states, made it unconstitutional to, to outlaw it. Uh, that, was a, that was a radical thing. 1972 began the gay pride marches in various cities. 
I can still I can still remember this as a kid. For whatever reason, I was the news was on, and you remember back in those days, you didn't have any much choice about what was on, right? You watched it because it was on. And what was it on? It was on like four channels. It was on two, four, or seven. And if you happened to be fortunate enough to have a UHF, <laughs> you could get 50, and then channel 20 came along. So you could watch The Ghoul late at night. <laughs> Some of you remember that. I mean, that's what you had. You, know, you had three channels, then you had the UHF, you know, a fourth or a fifth. That was it. So I remember watching the local news, and they just quickly reported, and the, and the reporter, the, the anchor man, was kind of snickering as he did this about this gay pride march in Detroit. And it was just this handful of people who were marching for gay rights. This is completely unknown. This is completely foreign. So that was the kind of world that I started to come up in as a 10-year-old and then as a you know, junior high and then, then high school and that some of you have known, and then some of you are younger, and you've only grown up in that kind of post-Christian worldview era. That's what I'll call it. It doesn't mean most people are even personally Christians. It just means that they accepted the components of a Christian worldview. And they did so often uncritically, but that was just the way the cultural consensus was. So we've gone through this radical transformation. Now, if you go back 2,000 years to the city of Athens, Greece, you would find people who are in similar circumstances to what we're in today. And that's why it's instructive for us to look at the ministry of Paul in Athens. Because, for example, these were people who didn't believe in absolute truth. And we now have that consensus today in our culture that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, we happen to know that that statement is true absolutely, they'll tell you, which is a contradiction in itself, right? It's absolutely true that there's no such thing as absolute truth, they will tell you. And so, uh, in the late 1980s, a professor uh, named Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And I remember reading that book and he was talking about how in his academic career, which at that point was in, into three decades, and in his academic career, the sea change that he had observed of the students who were now coming to him at the college level, university level, and the presuppositions of their worldview that they, they brought with them. And he describes that in the opening pages of this book. And he says that most of the students he is getting at that time, and here we are these many years since, don't believe in absolute truth. And, and, and if you tell them that there is such a thing as absolute truth, they will look at you, this is the word he used, uncomprehending, as if you are calling into question the proposition that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Now, this is a play on, on words from Professor Bloom because he's saying, you know, that seems to be an absolute in itself, doesn't it? That 2 plus 2 always comes out to 4 somehow. But these students don't see, the, don't see the, the contradiction. So they live with a mindset that says, there is no such thing as absolute truth. You have your truth, and I have my truth. And, uh, and what it means for them, then, is pluralism and relativism have merged. Now, what do I mean by that? 
pluralism means in a pluralistic society, every person is not only entitled to his or her own opinion, but they can spout it. So we live in a pluralistic society, and in the marketplace of ideas, people can spout off those ideas. They have the right to free speech and uh, assembly and demonstration and so forth, and so people can do that. And as the cultural consensus begins to fragment, as it's been doing over the last few decades in America, now people are exercising that with all sorts of different ideas. So our young people, then, are growing up in a culture where all they have known is this cacophony of different sounds and voices and isms and positions. Pluralism. All in all, pluralism is a good thing because it means we can preach what we, we have the freedom to preach what we believe. So I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm okay to go at it in the free marketplace of ideas. But here's where it goes south. It's when in the minds of people pluralism becomes confused with relativism. Pluralism is everybody is entitled to their own view. Relativism, relativism says all views are equally valid. And that's quite different. So I'm okay with everybody being entitled to their own view. I'm not okay with the proposition that all views are equally valid. But it's based on this relativistic premise. There is no such thing as absolute, so therefore, I have my truth, you have your truth, your truth's no better than, than my truth. And of course, here's where we come in, then. You know, we, we, we know that, we observe that, we need to be aware of it, intentionally aware of it. As we give, then, the truth of Scripture and the gospel to, to our culture, But here's the upside for that. Yes, we need to do all of that, and that's why I'm looking at Acts 17 today. But there's a a real upside to this whole thing, believe it or not, from a Christian standpoint. Because the fact of the matter is people cannot live with the consequences of that worldview. They can't. It falls apart. And we, we need to be there to pick up those pieces. The gospel picks up the pieces of the broken worldview that people are pursuing. The truth is they have to live off the borrowed capital of our worldview. I prefer the stolen capital of our worldview. Now, what do I mean by that? You really can't live with the idea that all truth claims are equally valid. You can't. You know, I mean, think about it. So just, just think about, just to make the point, you know, an extreme example. But is, is, is someone who says that it's okay to murder people because they're Jewish, a la the Holocaust, is that a, is that a valid position to take? But if you believe in relativism, there is no absolute truth. How are you going to refute that? On what basis are you going to refute that? But people can't live with that. So they have to live off the stolen capital of our worldview that there really are these absolutes. And if you ever watch somebody, and I've debated people along these very lines, back when I was in college and in time since, they get very annoyed, very annoyed. But the reason they get annoyed is because they don't have an answer to that. You say there is no such thing as absolute truth, now let's put that to the test in the real world. How does that work out? And then they have to fall back on, well, everybody knows murder's wrong. Well, it appears some people didn't, right? So back when I was in college, and this stuff was all starting to come to fruition, 
in the 80s. And uh, in the early, my first couple of years of college, I was in the, I was in social science classes a lot because most of you know I was uh, going to be um, going to go into politics, uh, go to law school, become a politician, become governor of Michigan, you know, maybe president, we'll see. So that was the idea. And then I was about halfway through that, you know, I'm, you know, struggling to pay for college and getting some loans for that and all that. And, you know, somebody mentioned to me, I think it was my mother, <laughs> you know, you, you might need a job when you get out of this. <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure you can you know, jump right into being a star politician and get a job and, and all of that stuff. So maybe you ought to think about that. And then I switched to computer science after that. But for those first couple of years, it was all these social science classes. And these kind of debates went on. And I remember reading a book uh, published, I think, in 1983 by a Christian journalist, still alive, he's on TV every now and then, some of you know Cal Thomas. But uh, Cal Thomas wrote a book called Book Burning. That was the name of the book. And in it he was addressing the accusation that was going around at the time that those of a conservative bent uh, were, were seeking to remove books from library shelves that they found objectionable. And indeed, in different towns in America, there were those kinds of debates that went on. Should Catcher in the Rye be available to, you know, six-year-olds in the library and, and that kind of stuff? So those debates were going on, and liberals were accusing conservatives in this, this culture war of, in effect, book burning by trying to remove these books. Cal Thomas uh, made the point that, you know, that's uh, a nice problem to have, to have your books even eligible to be burned. That was, that was the premise of his book. He said, because conservative books don't even get on the shelf. You're not burning our books because they ain't there. That's what he was saying. And at, those, at that time, he was right about that. Now, there's been a, there's a major change in that, at least on the political side. It's important on the political side, not so much the cultural side of talk radio and all that sort of stuff. But as he was making that point, he was talking about how it is becoming very evident that America is undergoing a, a major change in its cultural view. And he said he sees that when he goes to college campuses and speaks. And here I am, a college student, reading this, and I'm going, yep, I'm seeing it in my part of the world as well. And he says, uh, he gave some examples. And he uh, gave one example of... Uh, giving a, a talk about the need to have what Cal Thomas called the Judeo-Christian worldview and how if we abandon that, it will have ill consequences for our culture. And at the end of his talk, he had a young man come up to him who said to him, listen, I'm a 3.8 GPA political science student and I don't need you, God, Jesus, the Bible, or anybody else to tell me how to live my life. That's what he says to Cal Thomas. And Cal Thomas says, well, let me ask you something. He says, uh, is murder wrong? And the guy, you know, rolls his eyes. Of course murder's wrong. Well, Cal says, but you know, what if I wanted to advocate for a law that says you can kill certain people? And in fact, I'm thinking I might like to advocate for a law that we're allowed to murder cocky people. And the kid looks at him and he says, well, you, you can't do that because murder's wrong. And Cal says, I know, I know. You tell me why murder's wrong. 
and why it's not okay to pass a law to murder cocky people like you. And of course, the young man has no answer. He tells another story of a young lady who came up to him after one of his talks. And she did a similar sort of thing, and I don't need, and I've got my view, and you've got your view, and all of that. And he says, um, he says, all right, well, think of it this way. He says, uh, suppose that uh, my dog, we're neighbors, and my dog messes on your lawn. Why is it not okay for you to kill me for my dog messing on your lawn? And she says, well, I wouldn't do that. And he says, well, how do I know that? Why wouldn't you? Because of, and this is what she said, my socialization process. He said, you're what? My socialization process. That is, my parents raised me in a way that says killing somebody for an offense like that is wrong. He says, okay, well, let's change the story. It's not my dog on your lawn. It's your dog on my lawn. And I didn't have your parents. So now why can't I shoot you for having your dog on my lawn? And of course, she doesn't have an answer. And you see, that's the way it always is. So people can't live with the consequences of their own worldview. Which means that creates an opening for us. Because I have a theory, it's actually a theory based upon what I read in Scripture, is that the darker the culture gets, the brighter the gospel shines. And we need not fear that. Quite the contrary. I mean, I'm not happy, as none of you are, I'm not happy with the descent of our culture. But I'm also not fearful of it either. Because I know we have the answer, and I also know that that darkness creates an emptiness. People can't live with that. They see the brokenness. They experience the brokenness. And there's a place on Benson and Trenton that has the answers for that. That's the way we need to then look at this. This is our time. This is the time that God has called us to. This is in the words of Esther chapter 4 and verse 14. God has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. But it's a time sort of like Athens. And here's what Paul encountered when he went to Athens in verse 15 of Acts 17. It says, The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So the context is this, that Paul and Silas and Timothy have been on a missionary journey, second missionary journey, and they have been preaching the gospel. And for a brief time, they, they go separate ways with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join Paul in Athens. So Paul has a brief time of rest in Athens as he waits for them. And verse 16 picks that up then and says, While Paul was waiting for them, that is, T- Timothy and Silas, in Athens, his rest was interrupted <laughs> because it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, when it says greatly distressed, the Greek word that's translated uh, greatly distressed is a a word for having a seizure. I mean, Paul was just absolutely paralyzed by what he saw in Athens. The city was full of idols. Now, 
the city of Athens was full of physical idols. And as we're going to see, they had an idol for everything. One commentator uh, at the time said that in the city of Athens, you could find more more idols than men. So they had physical idols everywhere. And Paul was greatly distressed by what he saw. But how does that apply to you and me now? Do Do we have idols? Well, see, you've got to have eyes to see that in order for you to be distressed by that and then in turn for you to be motivated to action. We don't have so many physical idols in America yet. But we've got idols everywhere. And idols and isms. Listen, what is an idol biblically? An idol is anyone or anything that is valued above God. That's what an idol is. Does America have idols? Yikes. We even got a show called American Idol. I sometimes joke, if I'm going to have an idol, I'd prefer it be made in America, I suppose. But, but, but understand that you, know, you could read that and you could say, Paul's distressed, he sees the city full of idols, but you know, we don't have what Athens had. We do, just without the physical component to it. Idols everywhere. You've got to have eyes to see that people are chasing everything and every ism dead ends, everything except Jesus. And all of those then are by definition idols. So Paul was greatly distressed, and and the, the truth is we ought to be distressed then to see what people are doing to themselves and to their families and to their society by chasing these false notions that are indeed dead and deadly ends. We ought to be greatly distressed, and if we're distressed, then this is what we'll do, verse 17. So he reasoned. Now, the so is important because it's connecting his action in verse 17 with what he saw in verse 16. He doesn't take action to reason if he's not first distressed. And one of the reasons our churches are not as active as we ought to be in proclaiming the gospel is because we're not distressed. We, well, let me just be as blunt. I know it's a new thing for me to be blunt, but I'm going to start today being blunt. This is my resolution for 2014. I'm just going to cut it straight, okay? Look, the truth is uh, the church has become like the world. And when the church becomes like the world, you don't get distressed because you don't see the difference. But see, Paul saw a stark difference in where he was and where they were. And we need to see that stark difference as well. That's why I did the series on 1 Peter, living right in a world gone wrong, because the Bible talks about us being exiles. We are living in our culture, but there's a sense in which we are exiles from the culture. So we've got to see it that way. And then seeing that way, it motivates us to action, verse 17, so we do something. And Paul reasoned. That is, he argued. Some, some translations say he argued. Now, an argument we think, you know, I don't like to argue. Worst thing you can do is argue. An argument is, is simply a present, can simply be a presentation. So-and-so is making their argument for their position. And it is perfectly valid and, in fact, needful for us to argue for the Christian position. 
and to say this is the truth and here is why. And here is why what you're advocating is not the truth. You can do that in a kind way, but you do it in a very direct way and you make your argument. And that's what Paul did. And it says he did it in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. Well, it's clear why there would be Jews in the synagogue, but what about God-fearing Greeks? What is that? Well, we don't have time, but if you were to go back to Acts chapter 10, you find Peter going to uh, the household of a man named Cornelius. And the Bible tells us that in in Acts chapter 10, I believe verse 2, that Cornelius was a God-fearer. And here's what a God-fearer was. It was a technical name for a Gentile who observed the customs of Judaism. He's not a Jew, but he observed the customs of Judaism. So that's why these God-fearers would be at the synagogue. So we know why the Jews would be there, but that's why the God-fearers are there. And just as a quick aside, the God-fearers were one of the four categories of people in the church whose status had to be clarified as to whether or not they were equal citizens, equal members of Christ's body in the book of Acts. You had these four groups of people. You had the Jews. The church in Jerusalem was a Jewish church, the first church. But you had the Jews. But then you had the Samaritans. You remember who the Samaritans were? They're half-breed Jews, hated by the Jews. But some of them are getting saved. Now what are we going to do? So their status has to be clarified. You've got the God-fearers. They're Gentiles, but at least they observe the customs of Judaism, so they're, they're okay in the minds of many of the Jews. And then you've got your garden-variety Gentiles. As you read through the narrative in the book of Acts, all four of those now had to come together in this new thing called the body of Christ. And, and do you know what the evidence was that they were all equal in the book of Acts? It was that they all experienced the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. In the book of Acts, all four of them did that. So the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8 is the Samaritan Pentecost. Acts chapter 10, the God-fearer Pentecost. And Acts chapter 19, the Gentile Pentecost. There are actually four Pentecosts in the book of Acts. But those Pentecosts were all about that. Clarifying that everybody who comes to Jesus, Samaritans, God-fearers, Gentiles, they're all part of one body. All right, I feel better. Go back to Acts chapter 17 if you would. So there's the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as, so he goes to the synagogue and he goes to the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So at the synagogue, he's going to find an audience of people who are obviously interested in religious stuff. So he's got the Jews and he's got these God-fearers, these Gentiles who practice these customs of Judaism. But then there's the everyday person out on the street. And he goes there as well. He goes to the marketplace and he preaches and he argues and reasons with people there. And then verse 18 says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers philosophers began to dispute with him. Now it's important to see what they disputed with him about. It is uh, about the resurrection. In fact, down in uh, further in verse 18, it says, They said this because he was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. This whole thing about the resurrection arrested their attention. Because 
the, the one thing that the Stoics and the Epicureans had in common was this. Live it up now. Live it up in this life. And here's Paul talking about a next life and a resurrection. So that, that gains their attention. But there's something that you, you would, a couple of things that you would miss in verse 18 that I'd like to point out to you that I think are important. This group of philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler saying? The word for babbler is literally in Greek the word for seed picker. What is this seed picker saying? So they're uncomprehending about the gospel. It's just not penetrating their minds, certainly not their hearts at this point. And, and so they say, this guy's a seed picker. That is, none of this makes any sense. doesn't make any sense to them. He's got a bit of this and a bit of that, like a bird just picking bits of seed. That's what they call it. So it's a derogatory name, a babbler, a seed picker. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Now, gods is plural. Paul, how do you get that? But then Luke, who writes this, says, here's why they said that. Because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, get this. In Greek, words are, have gender. And some words are the masculine gender and some are the feminine gender. And the Greek word for Jesus in the ma- is the masculine gender, and the Greek word for resurrection is in the feminine gender. They thought he was talking about a male god and a female goddess because he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. So there's a lesson for us right there in the gospel. People don't get the gospel. They don't get it. It makes no sense to them until something happens. What has to happen, dear friends? The Holy Spirit has to turn the light on in the mind, right? So, so what does that mean for us? Look, our success as individuals and as a church is not based upon how many people respond or how they respond. It's based upon how faithful we were with the message. And then we pray, oh, Holy Spirit, open the minds of people. And then we will take whoever he brings, And if he doesn't do that, we'll be okay with that. We desire to see people come to Jesus. But we're not going to change the terms of the message. We're not going to water that down. We'll be as kind and loving as we can. But you've got to have the Holy Spirit illumine the mind of the individual for them to understand this. So they took him, verse 19. They brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know this new teaching, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, in verse 19, it sounds fairly mild. It's not. When it says they took him, it's they seized him, he, they arrested him. And they took him to the Areopagus. And this is not just, let's have coffee, Paul, and see if we can figure this out a little bit better. Paul's in some trouble here. Now, Paul's used to trouble, but he's in some trouble here. In fact, the Greek philosopher Socrates was actually executed. He was actually killed as a result of the verdict of, this, uh, of the Areopagus. So he has seized, he's arrested, and he has taken. And they say, we, we want to hear. Now, in verse 21, you have this, uh, you're bringing strange ideas, verse 20, to our ears. We want to know what they mean. 
Verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest idea. That's in parentheses. You see that? That's Luke's comment. <laughs> you know, these people just sit around and while away the day, just and any new idea they, they want to hear about. And then these guys at the Areopagus, they're actually charged with vetting the, the new ideas and philosophies that come into the city. So verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. So we've got idols everywhere. If we, and we don't want to offend whatever gods may be. <laughs> so in case we forgot one, <laughs> just here's a sort of an all-purpose <laughs> idol, right, to the unknown god. But what Paul says next is important. Now, what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. And the word proclaim is our word for preach. It is an authoritative presentation of truth. So he has the guts to stand up and say, this is what I'm going to do. You guys are clueless. Let me clue you in. And I'm going to authoritatively proclaim truth to you. And in verse 24, he starts to do that. When you read his presentation, he starts with creation. And here's what he's doing. God's, God is your personal creator and you're responsible to him. Now again, just as an aside, one of the reasons we're going through Genesis 1 through 12 uh, at the end of April in our sermon series is because people who are going to come to our church need to understand that we believe that what's said in those opening chapters is true. And it lays the foundation for everything else the Bible says. And, and I'll just say to you that, that evolution and Scripture are incompatible. And we'll seek to show that when we go through that. But, but Paul understood the importance of people understanding their personal responsibility to their personal creator. And he starts with creation. God made everything, the heavens and the earth, and that includes you. That's what he's saying. But he didn't just make everything and then step back. God is involved in his creation. Notice, he made everything. He's the Lord, therefore, of heaven and earth, including you, and he does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life, breath, and everything else. So you guys have it backwards. God doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from God. That's what he's saying because he's the creator. So you've got all these idols as if you're somehow doing something for God. He doesn't live in temples made by hands. He doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from Him. Because He's the one who gives men life, breath, and everything else. In fact, He is so much in control of your life that He determined when and where you'd be born and where you'd live. That's what He says in the next verse. And, you know, imagine you're these Athenian philosophers. You're going, this is a serious God you're talking about. And he's setting the stage, Paul is, for then what he's going to say in his conclusion, therefore, you must repent before this God. You must bow before this God. Because he's your creator. And you need him, not the other way around. And he gives to you, not the other way around. We, we've got to quit soon, but 
I don't know, just let them break in. Okay, we'll, we'll quit soon. The nursery people will be ticked. I will be executed. Um, but, you know, we, we sometimes think, have you ever thought about why God created? I mean, why did he create? And what was going on before he created? And so some people think, well, he created because he was lonely. But see, God doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient. And God has never been lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. So God didn't create because he needed us. God created because he likes to see him. He's extending his glory, his reflection. That's why he made people with the capacity to image him. So if you wanted to say God needs anything, here's what God needs. God needs to see his own reflection. He needs to see his own character. He needs to see his own glory. And that's why everything is ultimately about God's glory. And that's what Paul's saying here then. He doesn't need anything. We need him. He gives all men life and breath and and everything else. He's determined where you would be born and where you would live. You're dependent on him. He is completely independent of you. And then in verse 28, he quotes their own poets. And here's why he does that. Even though you are ignorant, and he's not being disrespectful, just you don't know. You've got the unknown God, and I'm going to proclaim authoritative truth to you to clue you in. But even though you are ignorant, you're not completely ignorant. Because some of your own poets have said this. We are his offspring. That's why he quotes them. And just as an aside, that's why sometimes I quote pagans. To just show that there are things that pagans get but don't accept. And distort. And that's what he's doing to them here. There are portions of this that you get... But because you don't accept the gospel and because you don't have the illumination of the Holy Spirit, you don't put it together. Which is what makes you culpable then before God. You're guilty before God because there is truth that you know, Romans 1, but you suppress that truth. You hold it down. That's why he quotes them. And then he goes on at the end to wrap it up and say, Jesus is the issue. And God has appointed God the Son, Jesus, as the one with whom men have to deal. And you must repent before him. Now, friends, that's the message that we're taking to Trenton. That's the message that we're taking to the surrounding communities. That is what God has called us to do here. We'll do it in various ways. We'll do it as lovingly as we can. But you, and I hope you'll be along for the ride. It's going to, be a, it's going to be a great time. Really, it will be a great time as we see. You know, in Acts 18, next chapter, Paul goes to Corinth. The Lord appears to him and he says, Paul, do not be afraid. Preach, because I have many people in this city. And I'm telling you, God has many people in Trenton and beyond. We haven't met them yet. I'm excited to find out who they are. Here's how we'll find out who they are. We'll proclaim that message. The Holy Spirit will turn the light on and they'll step forward and identify themselves. Hey, I'm one of those people that God planted this church to reach. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. It's going to be an exciting ride. I hope you guys will all be uh, along for it. But as we do, 
let's hold one another accountable and you hold me accountable and let's hold each other accountable for being absolutely faithful to this message that God has given us. Let's do it lovingly, but let's do it clearly. And then let's see what God does in the lives of people in a culture that is descending in darkness. Okay? Let's pray, and then uh, we'll be done. All right? Father, thank you for this day, for the blessings of being able to look into your word and to see our marching orders there. We thank you for those who have gone before and have been obedient to you and, and faithful uh, in your work. We thank you for the courage that your grace gave them in the midst of opposition. And Lord, we ask that you would grant us the same thing then. Help us to value you. Help us to value the gospel above all lesser things and all other things are lesser. And so go with us this week with your grace. Bring us back together at the community center next week as we worship you as your people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.